This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, I'm Mike Campbell, artistic director and founder of Huff, the Halifax Urban Folk Festival. And this is HuffCast, a limited-run podcast showcasing the best and brightest artists coming to Huff this year. Please join me as I chat with artists performing this year's 10th anniversary edition. I met today's guest when he was touring Canada for the first time in a little band from Saskatchewan called White Mouth Mason. I consider him one of the most talented people I know. I can't make up my mind if he's a better singer than a guitarist or vice versa. Either way, he'll always be the kid to me. Of course, I'm talking about Sean Vareau. And I got sicker. Hello. Sean? Yes. It's Mike Campbell, buddy. Oh, my God. It's so good to hear your voice. Mike <laughs> Campbell, how are you, pal? I'm all right, big fella. How are you doing out there? Were you, uh, you're in the Vancouver right now? I'm in the, the Vancouver area. I'm down in the deep south of Delta, BC oh. right now doing, uh, I, I do stuff with a guitar company um, that we, we make all the components that go on a bunch of guitars that people from around the world make. So I nerd out on guitar stuff during the day and then I play them all evening and, and on trips and I got guitar stuff just coming out of my ears at all times. That sounds like the Sean Barreau I met a million years ago. <laughs> exactly. I was trying to figure that out. Um, I, I, I know when I met, or I know where I met you. I know the first interview I did with you was in Moncton, New Brunswick, when I was doing much <laughs> The tidal bore. The tidal bore. I took it to the, that's the most exciting <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Why is it only four inches high? <laughs> Why are there bleachers here? Who cares? There's nothing cool about this. <laughs> and you were just a young, fresh-faced kid playing rock music across the country at the time. And it doesn't sound like that much has changed. Man, it's, it's funny how, um, how cyclical things are. And, and, it, and as the bottom sort of got pulled out of the music industry... And, you know, tours, in order to be able to tour sustainably, a lot of the niceties that were there for a minute kind of got stripped back. And it was like, how bad do you want to do this? Is it, is it still amazing for you to, to play guitar and write songs and to, to share the musical experience with people if, if a lot of the luxuries disappear? And over the course of that touring and over the, the last couple of years of, of working on the new record that we've been working on, that's included a whole bunch of woodshedding to develop a, a new technique, which was kind of like I was starting to play all over again. You're exactly right. I was, I've kind of been 16 year old me again for the last, well, it's been five years of developing this thing and going out and playing songs for people that are a mix of Mason songs that people knew and brand new stuff in a new presentation that they'd never seen before. Um, and, and feeling that connection with it again, like when we were just starting. So yeah, it's, it's, it's time travel. <laughs> well, what was it like when you were first starting, you know, Saskatoon? Well, I guess actually when you were there, Saskatoon was sort of in a bit of a, or Saskatchewan at least, is in a bit of a heyday, you know? Mm-hmm. Northern Pikes, Colin James, you guys all coming out of that one tiny little province. Yeah. What was it, it was, like, what was it like trying to put a band together and 
do something because I'm pretty sure when you started, if you're like most people, you know, having a great dream is one thing, but actually accomplishing it is something completely different. Yeah, I and it's funny. I don't I don't have older siblings, and I wasn't. I was such a baby face until I was about thirty. <laughs> I certainly wasn't getting into any bars to see people perform until you know when I was. 19, I'd have to have my ID around my neck for them to allow me in. But <laughs> um, I didn't I didn't meet any of the Pikes until later. Obviously, Joni Mitchell was long gone. Yeah. Um, Colin was was touring and and was living it. But, you know, Regina feels like a long way from Saskatoon when you're growing up there. So my experience with music was really very homegrown and local. There was a blues bar, which I'm, I'm sure you've been to, called Buds on Broadway, yep. that had a jam every Saturday. And that was my first, the first place, I remember I, I'd heard they had a jam, and I'd been playing guitar for a couple years and walked in, expecting every jam I'd ever seen was people sitting in a bunch of chairs in a semicircle kind of playing together. And I walked in, and a guitarist on stage with a, a wicked blues rock band was playing behind his head and I turned around to walk immediately out of there like whoa this is beyond my league and uh an amazing roots artist singer songwriter named Susie Vinnick was there and she she put a hand on my shoulder and went where are you going kid you have a guitar you just got here I was like well I, I think I'm I might not be ready for this and she didn't know me from you know from we'd never met before but she took it upon herself to go, no, 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 you can, you can, you play that thing. Do you sing? No, I don't sing. Okay. I'll sing with you. What songs do you know? I've uh, some blues jazz. Okay. Let's, let's go do that. And she pulled me up on stage and playing there became something that I did for the next bunch of years of Saturdays. And people would come through to perform like big Dave McLean or, Jack Semple, who's a, yep. a devastating, like Danny Gatton-esque guitarist from Regina. And and I didn't, th- this was right at the time of, of, you know, new country was massive. And the only musicians I knew who were going out and doing gigs were were telling me one after the other, look, the, the dream of playing your own stuff is, is not going to happen. What you got to do is learn a bunch of country covers and go on the road and and learn your lessons. And I was like, I, 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 I'm having so much fun playing in a basement with Saf and Earl sweating through our, our day job shirts. It's so magical for me that I, I don't want to go play music that doesn't speak to me. I'd rather do that and work at the music store I was working at. And then the music store I was working at downsized and I got laid off. I didn't know what I was going to do. And about two days later, um, a guy called me and went, look, I'm the drummer for this band. Um, we have a gig in Yellowknife and we're going there for either four weeks or seven weeks because <laughs> the, the the ice bridge either is too strong for boats to go through or too soft for cars to drive on for a while. So we're going to be there for a bit um, and we need a guitar player. Our guitar player fell through. Uh, would you do it with us? And uh, what kind of music is it? And he, you know, it's a bunch of like, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Zeppelin and Hendrix. And, uh, and I went, okay, that I can get behind. Are we going to meet and rehearse? And he's like, well, we can talk it over when we get you in the van in about two hours. <laughs> so pack up your gear and pack some clothes. And, and it was a baptism of fire. It was right when all the giant mine 
strike stuff was happening there where there were workers being flown in. So my very first paying gig in a, in a club got shut down. I would say about 80% of the nights would end somewhere in the third set when, uh, warring factions of of workers and replacement workers would start to fight on the dance floor and these refrigerator-sized policemen they'd flown up to Yellowknife during the time would come in and pepper spray everybody and count their batons and we'd be hiding behind our amps. And it was it was just a way to jump into it and go, okay, maybe this is what playing music for a living is. And I love all these songs and I'm I'm learning how to do some and, and eventually they cajoled me into singing for part of the night and it really just became something that I thought okay this is I can I can hone myself in gigs like this so it, I did that for a few years while Saf and Earl were still in school and then I'd come back to Saskatoon and we'd work on stuff and I, I noticed that I could sing more things I could sing whatever I imagined after a while and play whatever I imagined and the, I think when I was coming up, the difference between then and someone starting now is that there were just so many gigs. You could play six nights a week for forever and have opportunities to get on stage and sing and play songs that you you know that people knew that were going to work and learn how to perform and learn how to stare down um, audiences that weren't into seeing you and and learn how to perform with authority and how to perform when your voice hurt or when you, when your gear was broken and just how to, all the things that you end up needing when you say open for a, a massive band and no one's ever heard of your band, all those tools we forged in these little tiny clubs. So yeah, to your question, it was, I think starting out then it was, it was very much a, you could kind of light the path in front of you, maybe two steps and the, the dream of doing it, as a career and for a living and, and releasing music that a bunch of people would hear, I, I, there wasn't really a path to that, but there was a path to, I'm getting better as a player. I'm the songs I write, I like more and, and playing all these cover songs gave me a, an idea of the framework of music and the shapes and the Lego pieces that I, I could access and, and arrange things into. And it just was, um, one gig after another led to then, you know, what became Widemouth Mason starting to do these shows and doing half our own songs and, and half R&B songs and blues songs in blues clubs and, and paying our dues and earning our chops. Yeah. And then to the point where, you know, you have a record, uh, you're actually, radio actually played stuff in those days. And then there were places to play right across the country. I remember that first interview I did, you guys were, you know, I forget uh, which record rep I was talking about. You know, do you mind going to Moncton? Yeah. <laughs> do you mind going to Moncton to interview this yeah. band? It's like, well, Moncton's a long way to go, but <laughs> sure, I'll go to Moncton to interview these guys. They're from Saskatchewan. My dad's <laughs> family's from Saskatoon. Of course, I'm honor bound to go. But then you take, you know, then things start to work out here and, you know, you wind up opening for ACDC. Yeah. (laughs) Not just just a gig, but on a tour, Stones and stuff. And, you know, what was it like working with those acts and playing to audiences, as you say, who have no clue who you are? Well, in both instances, the the Stones ones um, had to be postponed because of the ice storms in Montreal. So the... Mm. I can't remember who the original opening act was, but we got 
pitched and thrown into it kind of at the last minute. So it wasn't like, you know, we were looking at a calendar going, oh God, in, in four months we have these gigs. It was just like, okay, these are, these are happening next week and just deal with it. But the, the arc of it had been a really steady incline from those, those backwoods, you know, grinded out people giving staff the finger for the entire show because they, they didn't like brown people wherever we were playing to mm. um, slightly bigger gigs. And then uh, a, a really pivotal moment for us was when we were playing in Saskatoon and our manager at the time just relentlessly would not let Gordy Johnson leave and enjoy his pre-show time without catching a song by us. Right. And then he saw us and went, what are these guys doing for the next month? I don't know. Well, they're opening for us. So that brought us on the road in front of a, an audience that was pretty predisposed to dig us if they were there to see Big Sugar. And then it was just one after another of those things. Someone seeing us live and going, you should come open for George Thorogood in, the, in a bunch of theaters in the States. Or every, every gig was just a little more that we could handle, but not completely foreign to what we had done before. And, uh, yeah, those stones ones came up and then the ACBC ones were, were, we put to use every lesson we learned in every small bar because it was originally Slash's snake pit opening the show. Right. And uh, people weren't really familiar with Slash's solo stuff, but they, you know, they recognized the guy in the hat and (laughs) because the shows were all sold out. And then he dropped out of the tour and they added us. They didn't advertise. They didn't spend more money advertising than going, by the way, Slash isn't going to be here. There's going to be three kids from Saskatoon you've never heard of. So the lights would go down. People would start cheering. We'd walk out. And I thought years later, you know what we should have done is just put a wig and a hat on Sass. And then the people would have just thought, oh, Slash is drumming now. And they would say, cool. But, but instead, we'd walk out and there would, there would be sort of a moment of silence and then ripples of, what the hell? Who the, f- what the, <laughs> boo? And, and we would just play three or four songs with no talking in between with a bunch of guitar playing. Um, and, and the tour would come up in the, in the shape of, listen, if you can be in Florida in two days, you can open two or three shows. And if it goes well, if the audience doesn't kill you, you'll perhaps <laughs> get a couple more. And I think part of it was that we were, we were fearless in those situations, but we were also, we were three guys from Sketch. So when the, the crew who were like ACDC family and had been on the road with them forever would come up and go, Hey, what do you need for this? We'd go, Hey man, whatever's easy is for you. You know, give us monitors or don't. We're just really happy to be here. I think the, the crew and the band kind of lobbied for us. And we ended up opening that tour for seven weeks all across North America. Every, every couple days would be another show somewhere else with the same thing. Lights go down. People are mad that we're not flash. And by <laughs> about the fourth or fifth song in, they would be with us. And then to, to be able to say, listen, you know, Angus and Malcolm asked us to do the rest of this tour. And, and by the end of it, there were times, you know, where we would walk into the hotel lounge after the gig and people would start applauding. It was like, okay, this is, this is real. It feels really meaningful that we can go into, not that you get complacent, but you get to the point where you go, okay, well, we have, 
we have these songs that have been played on much or the radio enough in Canada that a crowd will be somewhat familiar with us. It was really invigorating and, and uh, rejuvenating to go play these places. And go, okay. They not only, we're not starting from zero. We're starting at like minus 10 with these people and, and they're getting it. it the, the cyclical part of it is underlined now by, this, this latest record, the newest project, and the last five years of my life as a musician have been uh, the guy who was playing behind his head in the blues bar when I walked in became a really dear friend of mine, and he hadn't been playing for a while. And, and we did these shows with, um, with Rain Wolf, with Jordan Cook, who also grew up in Saskatoon, and I, and this guy, Curtis Garrow, and all of us who grew up with Bugs watching Big Dave and Jack. Uh, so we got Curtis playing again. And as a, as a, you know, hey, thanks for getting me playing again, he gifted me a lap steel that he had carved with his own hands and, you know, put, the, put a pickup resting on quarters that he screwed into this piece of wood. And I, I had no idea what to make of it. I play a lot of bottleneck slide, but this last yeah. field made me feel like a numbskull because it's a totally different mechanics. And five years ago, I was in working in a studio uh, with on a project with Ryan Dahl from Limb Lifter and yeah. Age of Electric and Mounties. And we were sitting in his Airstream trailer and it dawned on me that if I put a slide on more than one finger... I could play some of the stuff that I would play on a regular guitar, but I could do things like move them and have the melodies going in different directions and one thing staying still, but the other thing sliding in it. It was terrifying because it was tightrope walking. Everything would be really badly out of tune if you're off by a fraction of a millimeter, mm. but I heard a newness in it. So it, it coincided with, my daughter having just been born and me not wanting to miss her childhood and watch her grow up on my, on FaceTime. So really scaled back the road work to snipering out for stuff that made sense, but stayed home with my daughter and my wife and just woodshed it like I hadn't since I was 12 years old, just spending hours a day learning other people's songs, transposing Mason songs into this, style of playing lap steel with, I, I tried a variety of like, you know, symbols and knives and gloves and weird things that I'd put on my hands and settled on using three slides at once. And the process of, of having to kind of make it up as I went along, because as far as I could Google, there had been some people who'd used one slide and a, and a extender thing on their thumbs before, but there wasn't a Mel Bay book or a, or a video that I could watch to teach me how to do it. So I had to dream it up and, and allow my ears and my fingers to guide me to different places. And because I, I just could only conjure primary colors at the very beginning, I started writing torch blues jams, like sit with a resonator and stomp your foot and you can do two or three chords in tune. And then over time I could do a little bit more and play melodies with it. And it was just really rewarding and challenging, and frustrating and, and ultimately really satisfying to sit and try and figure out how to do this stuff. And I started bringing it to, to gigs that I was doing in Vancouver and really going, listen, guys, I'm sorry. The only way to learn a new language is to, you know, move to 
France and have to speak French. So this is the only guitar I brought this evening and some parts of it are going to be pretty seasick and <laughs> woozy sounding, but this is what I have to do. And it, it developed to where I, I found a voice on it and started writing a bunch of songs. And um, eventually I, I started playing them for, for Sass and, and Gordy uh, had been playing in the Masons, playing bass with us for a while. Yeah. And, uh, and then was focusing on some more Big Sugar stuff. So it was just Sass and I wondering what we were going to do. And we went into Ryan's studio five years later and recorded so quickly and so intuitively um, songs that Sass may have never heard before that I just finished the night before. I go, this is how the verse goes. This is the chorus. Something else will happen here and let's just see what happens. And we captured stuff with me singing while I was playing and Sass playing and then either Ryan would play bass after or some uh, Aaron Paris, a Vancouver guy would play or I would. And this record feels very much like what our first one was like, where we were so in touch with rhythm and soul-based music um, and and the excitement of feeling like there was something new that we were doing and being really in touch with our instruments, but not having worn ourselves down by grinding it out, um, doing the same thing over and over again. That mm. it, it very much feels like arriving again at the beginning and having a chance to do it again with the perspective of having doing having done it once before. So as a player, I'd look down and go, Ooh, if I could send a message to 12 year old me, I'd say, don't lift your pinky up that high when you're playing. It's a bad habit. You're wasting all this movement. Don't do that. Learn how to teach yourself how to move less. So I could apply that all to this, this lap steel style of, playing and and man i i remember a couple times coming to your place and doing gigs when we had we'd become friends i think we bonded over you know our love of tidal bores and tom petty's music <laughs> and one of the things we would always look forward to with a new record is we're gonna go to mike's tiki and we're gonna <laughs> play it and hang it and if he digs it then it's and we must be on the right track because you've heard everything we've we've done so beyond the the beautiful, free, collaborative wildness of what it sounds like a bunch of these gigs will be. I'm, I'm looking forward to spinning it for you and seeing what you think. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. And speaking of collaborative efforts and stuff, you know, but, you know, you're somebody that jumps in and plays with people that you don't necessarily know or haven't played with before, but you all have a common language. You can jump in. What I'm excited, like one of the things I'm really excited about is, Seeing your all-star band, because uh, it's a really, really good all-star band. Yeah. And you're going to wind up on stage with uh, Corey Tetford and Chris Kirby, who not only are both killer guitar players, but they're also killer voices. So, like, all three of you guys frontlining that is going to be... That is going to be mind-blowing. And we've got Charlie Acourt, who's a local... Yeah. Also masterful blues player and singer uh, who's opening the show with his trio. So it is going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a guitar 
geek's paradise for one thing, but I also like the, you know, aside from the fact that <clears throat> I guess you're doing Frank Zappa's catalog start to front. Is that that's <laughs> what everybody's doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. That's you can just jam some Zappa, can't you? Sure, I think that'd be completely <laughs> fine. Me. I'm Captain Beefheart. That's me. <laughs> yeah, so that's gonna be that's gonna be absolutely super cool, super cool night. You're gonna do material from all the way through your career. Yeah, we're going to do a mix of things. And Kirby and I actually have, have written a bunch of songs over the years, some of which are on his most recent project. And uh, I've done yeah. solo gigs playing with Alan that Corey was in the band. And, and But yeah, there's a bunch of concentric circles, but we've never done this exact thing before. And I, it's, it's a muscle. Like a, it, It's funny, I've been doing a series of shows either here or, or in Saskatoon where I would just get in touch with someone like Joey Landreth and go, man, we, mm-hmm. we love each other's playing. We've met like once, you know what we should do? We should just go to a club and get a rhythm section and not talk about anything until we go on stage and just see what happens <laughs> and how we respond to it and what, you know, start a, Ask someone in the crowd, hey, what's your name? Dean. My name's Dean. Okay, Dean is spelled D-E-A. The chords are D-E-A. There's no N chord. So the chords are D-E and A and go. And then have snippets of lyrics that you're working on in your head or go, oh, that sounds kind of like this Prince jam I'm going to start singing and just see how Mm. everyone converses. So I think part of the night will be us playing things that we've gone, Hey, you know, it would be, I've always wanted to play this song of yours or, Hey Kirby, we should play that one we wrote. And part of it will just be, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens if we just go. That's I'm totally down with that. I have one request. I think I already asked yes. you about it. <laughs> yeah. I think that thank the band God, should learn John Hyatt's, bar. thank God the Tiki bar is open. And then when the show's over, we can go back to the Tiki and maybe, uh, Try that like Vulan on for sex. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, um, Ted, you really heard a whole lot about this festival before? You, well, I think I've been trying to get you here for a couple of years, so yeah. I would have talked to you about it. But yeah, and and reading about it, I love I love the my favorite thing that I've ever seen at any of the the folk festivals, urban or semi rural, that I've ever been to are the the workshops and the collaborative parts, exactly like this, where you, you get these unlikely combinations. And we live in such an era of pre-production, post-production, everything nipped and tucked and fixed. And, and, you know, before you even see it, it's been edited and put together. And the, the, the high wire act of, of ooh, we don't know what's going to happen here. It could go, it could go wrong. And if someone is, is, astute enough to pull it out of the ditch, it could go really right, right after. (laughs) And the Mm. list of people performing too, I'm, I'm excited just to be in the audience for some of it and be on stage for some of it. Well, I was, um, I was reading a review of a performance that you'd done. I don't know how recent it is. I don't think it was that long ago in Vancouver in some small club, Guilt something. Mm -hmm. Guilt and Company. Yeah. Right. With Pat Stewart on drums? Yeah. 
and the review is saying, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Awesome. Fantastic. Of course it was. I just talked to Pat last week because he saw that I had Matthew Sweet coming for Huff. So he just called to say, awesome. And uh, so I see this and it's like, great. And then he's saying, oh, the guys did this and this and this. And, you know, they played a Jeff Healy song. And uh, I was just literally on the phone five minutes ago with Tom Steven, Jeff Healy's drummer, um, who's going to be in town during Huff. So if you got a Healy cover to haul out, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't take much to get Tom to jump out of the crowd and sit behind a kit for that one. Oh, man, that would be... The, the only time we'd, we'd played shows on the same bill before. And the one time that, that Jeff and, and Tom came in for a bit and, and uh, Joe played for a bit and Zapp and Earl swapped out, um, Jeff Healy band and us and a bunch of blues musicians were part of this thing at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland that was a tribute mm. uh, to Jimmy Rogers, not the singing Brakeman Jimmy Rogers, but the guy who played with Muddy Waters. Jimmy Rogers. And it was a really weird night. We were in the middle of playing Edge Fest. So we'd flown out for, we were literally in the air and on the ground in Switzerland for about 30 something hours and then flew back to Canada. So it was like being on acid. And we showed up and, and it was just completely jet lagged and went, Oh, I want to do this song. And they're going, Oh, bro, someone already picked that song. So I had to cram and learn. I learned the song Sloppy Drunk and it, just looking around the room, it was like, well, oh, there's Amit Erdogan and there's, oh my God, there's just, you know, a bunch of people who played with Muddy and we ended up going, I played in that and Jeff played in that. And then afterwards it was like, it was really late because of course at a blues jam, if you're not careful, it'll be like, right. okay, it's a slow blues. Everyone takes six turns at the chorus and it was like, okay, it's really late <laughs> and people are starting to leave. So at the, at the old school Montreux Jazz Festival, the one in the casino that to tie it back to Frank Zappa that got started on fire in the song Smoke on the Water, um, right. funky Claude, you know, getting people out the window. Claude Knobs had the idea, the organizer of the festival, he went, when we used to do it at the casino, there were people on stage sitting around the band. And at this point in 1999, it was with Jeff, it had become like a, a big theater that people were out in the crowd. And because the Jimmy Rogers tribute had gone so late, half the crowd left. So Claude went, everyone come on stage. Let's make it like the casino. So the crowd was half in the seats and half just sitting on the floor around us. And we started playing and, and Jeff was there. So we invited him up to come to firm and we didn't, we only had one amp. So he played and I sang and then I played and he sang and our rhythm sections swapped out and it was beautiful. It was just exactly like we're describing those, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Oh, we're going to play further on up the road. Okay. I, I can play that one. And, <laughs> just see what happens looking around and seeing all these people a foot away from us where you can just watch their pupils dilate if you sing a note that they like was was magical so i think that was the the one and only time i ever played with tom and it would yeah it'd be fun to relive that and and honor that moment and and certainly jeff by doing something like that so i'm game yeah, well, Jeff, uh, Tom's in the middle of uh, or in the process of uh, producing a documentary about Jeff. 
<clears throat> so he's got <clears throat> a bunch of people lined up to interview with Buddy Guy and um, what's his name, ZZ Top, and I think Dave Stewart and uh, um, Clive Davis and all kinds of other folks. And I'm sure he'd be interested in talking to you about them, well, just you know, as a guitar too. player. Yeah, and the, uh, stories. Yeah, especially with this this lap thing. I mean the the first guy mm-hmm. I ever saw play his guitar with the strings facing up was Jeff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is all full circle moments. <laughs> <laughs> We're tying this together well, I'm like looking... a Seinfeld episode, man. Every, every uh, random tangent. Something's actually going to come from it. Fantastic. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to seeing you, bud, and I appreciate your time today. My friend, I cannot wait. Thank you for having me, and thank you for... In those years where I couldn't make it, being persistent and asking me again, I'm so excited. Okay, Sean. <laughs> we'll see you soon, buddy. Thank All you. All right, Mike. Take care. That's our show for today. Thanks to our guest, Sean Verreau, joining us all the way from Vancouver, British Columbia. Also, thanks to Joel Plaskett for the use of our theme music, Village Sound, and to you, the music fan, for giving it a listen. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 